So the title we've given to this series that we're in in uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is A Heart for God. That's what we're calling this because really that is the key theme in these two books. Uh, although 1 and 2 Samuel belong to what we call the historical books of the Bible, really what we see here is that as we read the stories that are chronicled here, God doesn't just want us to see what happened. He doesn't just want us to see what people did. He wants to take us deeper than that. He wants to show us the motivations of their hearts, the, the fundamental things that drive them, the things that cause them to make the decisions that they make, the beliefs and the hopes and the fears which drive them to make the decisions that they did. And, and really the key verse that sums up what the, these two books are all about is found in 1 Samuel 16, where we read in verse 7, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So that's really the key theme here, and that's a really important thing for us to consider as well in regard to ourselves. We need to ask the question, what are the underlying motivators in my life? What are the things going on in my heart that drive me, that move me to make the decisions and the actions that I do? Proverbs 4 verse 23 says this, it says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart. That's the key. And the goal of our study of First and Second Samuel is this, that we would develop a heart for God. That's what I want for each and every one of you who is here. So again, let's open up our Bibles to First Samuel chapter 2. The title of today's message is Messed Up Ministry messed up ministry. Here's what we see. Last week we left off in our, in our first look at this book. We saw a woman named Hannah. Hannah was barren and she prayed to the Lord and she made a promise. She said, Lord, if you will give me a son, then I will give him back to you. I'll give him wholly back to you. I won't hold back anything. It was the one thing in life she wanted more than anything, but she got to the point where she said, you know what? I have made this an ultimate thing. And now I'm handing it back to you, Lord. If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. He'll be yours completely, fully. So God does give her a son. She names him Samuel, which means, uh, which means heard of God, means pretty much that God heard my prayer. And so when Samuel is three or four years old, his parents take him to Shiloh, which is the place in those days where the tabernacle stood. This was the place of worship. The tabernacle was before the temple was built in the days of Solomon. There was this tabernacle for hundreds of years. Israel had this tent. It was this meeting place. It was this big tent. And that was their worship center. That's where people would go to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And so they bring Samuel down to the tabernacle to serve with the priests in this worship setting. And that's where we pick up our story today. Samuel's a young boy. He's serving alongside the priests in the tabernacle. But what we're going to see here in chapter 2 is how messed up the ministry was in the tabernacle in those days. What we'll see is that the priests were acting in ways that were shameful, really. They were act doing terrible things. They were doing things, and because of their shameful acts, they were driving people away from God. They were making people not want to come to the place of worship because their actions were so messed up, right? They were so wrong. And I think this topic could not be more relevant to the world that we live in today, right? We live in an age of scandals. It's not uncommon uh, for pastors to make the news, for priests to be in the news, especially over the last several years, for doing shameful and even terrible things. 
And for every one of those pastors or priests who make the news, there are others who don't make the news, but also do shameful things. They do bad things. And as a result of the things that they do, people are driven away from God. They're driven away from the church. It shouldn't be that way, right? Maybe some of you have been affected by that kind of thing yourself. I've seen it up close. I'm sure that some of you have as well. But here's what I want you to see as we look at this chapter. I want you to see God's heart towards these kind of things, right? That's what everybody's wondering. Wow, these people do these terrible things. Where is God in all of this? What does God think about this? What is he doing about it, right? What, and, and here's the other thing. What is the ultimate promise that God makes for those of you, for those of us who hunger and thirst for things to be right, That's what we're going to be looking at. God's heart towards these things and God's promise for those of us who hunger and thirst for things to be made right. As we look at this story, there are three aspects of it that we're going to be looking at, which really form a blueprint for messed up ministry. So if any of you are, uh, you know, thinking that maybe messed up ministry is something I'd like to do with my life, here's three ways to do it, okay? Number one, messed up motivations. Messed up motivations. That's the first thing we see. The next thing we'll see is a disregard for the holy, And thirdly, we see an absence of discipline. These three things put together create a perfect storm and a messed up ministry. First of all, let's look at messed up motivations. We pick up the story in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Okay, so Eli, we saw this a little bit last week. Eli was the high priest, right? He's the boss there at the temple. And his sons, their names are Hophni and Phinehas. We'll see them a little bit later as well. Uh, They were the priests. So as the sons of the high priest, their job was to be the priests. And we read that these men, the priests, this is what it tells us about them. They were corrupt and they didn't know the Lord. Now how bad is that when the pastor is corrupt and doesn't know the Lord? I mean, you've got a problem when your pastor isn't saved and he likes to steal, right? You know, it's like you ask somebody, oh, so tell me about your church. Oh, yeah. Tell me what your pastor's like. Oh, well, he's in his uh, mid to late 30s. He's about six feet tall. Not a bad public speaker. And he's corrupt and he doesn't know the Lord. What? Really? Oh, that's your pastor? Yeah, you know, I mean, he's a good guy. He just, he's just not really into God, you know? Well, well, actually, never mind. He's not actually a good guy. He's, he's, uh, he's corrupt and he's manipulative and he rips people off and he has affairs all the time. So I guess he's not really a good guy, but, but who am I to judge? He's a really good public speaker, right? Well, this is pretty much the situation that they had there in this this worship setting in the tabernacle in the days when Samuel was there as a, as a child serving. It was bad, right? I mean, knowing the Lord, that's a bit of a prerequisite for being a pastor, right? At least it should be. Of all the people in the world, you probably want your pastor to be somebody who, who knows the Lord and lives a godly life and is respectable and trustworthy and is not going to rip you off or have an affair with your family members, right? But I tell you what, Situations like this one here in 1 Samuel where the priests and the pastors were corrupt people who didn't even know the Lord, unfortunately, it still happens today. We see it in the news. We, some of us have seen it up close. We've seen it in our own communities, right? Pastors who embezzle money from churches or, or you know, pastors who bail out on their families and run off with the secretary or, or priests who do terrible things to young people. And you wonder, how could they do that? Does that person even 
know the Lord at all? Are they even a Christian? How could a Christian do that? They, they certainly can't know the Lord. Now let's take a second to talk about that phrase there in verse 12 because it's really important. He says that they did not know the Lord. Now that's really one of the uh, key concepts in the Bible. This is one of the most important concepts in the Bible, this idea of knowing the Lord. And the Bible teaches that there's a difference between knowing about God. Anybody can know about God. There's a difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. I read online, there's a, there's a recent uh, survey that was done in the U.S. using the internet and algorithms and all that, and they determined the 10,000 most famous people who have ever lived, right? Who are the 10,000 most famous people in the whole world who have ever lived? Justin Bieber, he's pretty famous, right? Well, apparently not that famous. He's only 8,633rd most famous person in the world. Barack Obama, he is the 111th most famous person in the world. Adolf Hitler is number seven. George Washington was six. Abraham Lincoln is fifth. And of course, Jesus of Nazareth is the number one most famous person in the world. No surprise there. But, uh, but think about Barack Obama, right? He's alive. Most of us know a lot about him. We know where he goes on vacation. We know how he spends his time. We know his likes and dislikes. We know his favorite food. We know about what goes on in his family setting. We know his viewpoints, his comings and goings. But even though I know a lot about Barack Obama, I don't know him, right? I don't have him on speed dial. And even if I did, you know, uh, I'd probably get arrested. And, and you know, if I was trying to call in, he, he doesn't have me on speed dial, that's for sure. We don't have a relationship. We don't talk. We don't interact. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. And the same is true of Jesus, right? The most famous person who ever lived. Barack Obama's only number 111. Jesus is number one. His life, right? His words, they've been studied by, and analyzed by people of every generation for the last 2,000 years. A lot of people know a lot of things about Jesus. They know about his likes and his dislikes. They try to know as much about him as they possibly can. But Jesus said, just knowing about me isn't going to cut it. That's not enough. I want you to know me. I want you to actually know me. Jesus came and his claim was that he was God come to earth in human flesh. He said, to know me is to know the Father. He even said, no one can know the Father except through me. There's in fact another place in the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples and those people who are sitting around listening to him talk, uh, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So Jesus is talking about people who knew a lot about him. In fact, these people were even involved in serving him, kind of like these two priests in the tabernacle in those days, Hophni and Phinehas, right? They were involved in serving him. They were doing things for him. In fact, not just little things. They were doing impressive, significant things in his name. But yet Jesus says, you never knew me. We didn't have a relationship. You didn't know me. Just because you do something for God doesn't mean that you know God, right? And Jesus basically tells us, 
I don't want you to just do stuff for me. So many people, that's their whole connection with God. I do stuff for him. The thing he wants more than anything else is for you to know him personally and intimately, to have a relationship with him. And ultimately, that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that is the very definition of what it means to be saved. Jesus said in, in John 17, 3, he said, This is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, right? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the essence of what it means to be saved, is to have this dynamic relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I wonder if any of you here are listening to this and you say, you know what, honestly, I, that's me. I know a lot about God, but I don't actually know God, right? I don't, I don't interact with God. I don't have a relationship with him, and I need to. I'm here to tell you today that there's no better time than now to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in what he did for you on the cross of Calvary and make God the Lord of your life and start that dynamic relationship with God, which is the very essence of what it means to be saved and to be a Christian. So here we are in 1 Samuel again, and the priests in the tabernacle are corrupt and they don't know the Lord. That's a big problem, right, when the pastor is not saved. But that was the situation here. I, I've observed this myself, actually, from time to time. When I lived in Hungary, I had this friend named Moses, right? And uh, I lived in this town where there was a theological seminary, and I knew some of the seminary students, and Moses was one of the students I knew. He was studying in seminary to become a reformed pastor. And this guy came from a family where for generations, all the men had been reformed pastors. His grandfather was a very famous reformed pastor in Hungary during the communist period. His grandfather was arrested actually and sent off to Siberia because he spoke out against Stalin, right? And uh, Moses' father was also a well-known pastor in Hungary. He was kind of like the Max Lucado of Hungary, right? He had all these devotional books that he had written. And so, uh, you know, it was a well-known family, uh, and being pastors, that was kind of like the family business. This is what all the uncles did, what all the cousins did, grandpa and dad and all these people. So for him, this was the complete expectation. Go to seminary and become a pastor. There's just one little problem. Moses didn't know the Lord, like at all, like zero, like minus zero, right? He didn't know the Lord at all, not one bit. He could have cared less. He was into girls and everything else, but not God, right? And for him, the Bible was really nothing more than a class that he took at school. Jesus, that's a name that you use at work, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, that, that's exactly what we have here with Eli's sons. The only reason they were priests was because this was the family business. Dad was a high priest. Their hearts weren't burning with passion for the Lord. Their ministry in the tabernacle, it was just a job for them. A few years ago, Time Magazine published an article about Christianity in Europe. And one of the, the people they highlighted was a priest in Denmark who had been suspended by his denomination. Now, remember that he was suspended. Here's what he did. He made a public announcement that he was an atheist, right? And they suspended him. Like, all right, you just take a little time off, and then we'll revisit this, okay? Why would, and the other part is, why would a person who's an atheist even want to be a pastor? Why? 
Well, he gave a few reasons. He said, well, tradition. I like tradition. I'm not going to let a detail like the fact that I don't believe in God stop me from tradition. And, uh, and you know, it's a respectable occupation. I want to be involved in the community. Believing in God, well, that's kind of just a, a detail that's somewhat insignificant in, in regard to those things. And in fact, many people, like my friend Moses, like this priest in Denmark, like the sons of Eli in the tabernacle, they have messed up motivations when it comes to doing things for God. Messed up motivations when it comes to doing things for God. As we'll see, Eli's sons in this story, their motivation is personal gain. That's what we're going to see. Not serving God, not serving other people. But here's the thing, you don't have to be a pastor or a priest to have messed up motivations when it comes to how you relate to God. How about you? Think about it this way. How do you live your life? Do you live life under God? Do you live life over God? Do you live life for God? Or do you live life with God? Okay, under under, over, for, or with. I'll break it down. Life under God. It means that you relate to God basically in terms of what he gives you, what he does for you. He's up there, you're down here, and he showers down the good stuff on you. That's your relationship with him. And the motivation in this way of relating to God is, is coming to God always with requests because he's the guy who can make things happen. Now then there's life over God, right? Life over God is basically means that you have your goals. You have your pursuits. It's already nailed down. You're pretty much going to do whatever you want to do. You call the shots. You make the agenda. And you don't look to God necessarily as the Lord of your life, meaning that he's the boss. Uh, you look to him more like, uh, like if your movie was, if your life was a movie, he'd be kind of like in a supporting role, right? He'd be a, uh, he'd be like an extra, in the uh, movie of your life. He doesn't have a major role in the story and he doesn't have any major lines, right? Life for God then is, that means that your relationship with God, and I think that's these guys, was primarily defined by what you do for him, right? What you do for him, life for God. And then there's life with God, right? Life with God is the ideal. That means that you know him, you walk with him, you walk in step with him, you interact with him. That's a relationship. Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us. And by becoming a man and coming to us, God was making a statement that this is what he wants, life with us. And each of these ways of relating to God, right, under, over, for, with, they are characterized by certain fears and certain values. Certain fears and certain values. Think about this. This might help you to diagnose it, right? If you live life under God, then what you value is what God does for you and what God gives to you. And you fear things like pain and hardship and unanswered prayers, if you live life over God, then you value independence, autonomy. You fear things like surrendering to God and giving everything over to him and living by faith. If you live life for God, then the things you value are accomplishments and achievements. And you're scared of things like insignificance and not making a difference. But if you live life with God, you know what you value? God right? And, and you know what you fear? God, right? Uh, and, and these guys in our story, which of these do you think applied to them? How do they relate to God? I think it's pretty safe to say that they were living life over God and living life for God, right? What about you? How do you relate to God? 
It's so easy for us to have messed up motivations, and that's why one of the great themes of this book is the motivations of our hearts and examining those. As we see here, God's desire for us is that we would know him and that we would live life with him. That's why Jesus' title was Emmanuel, God with us. So first of all, we see messed up motivations. The next aspect of this messed up ministry is a disregard for the holy. Please read with me from verse 13. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give me meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, then they would answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the Lord abhorred, or for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. That's them driving men away from God. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew up before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All right, so there were a number of different sacrifices that people would make at the tabernacle as, of, as acts of worship. For those Bible students of you, for you note takers, sketch this down. It's Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. You can read about the different sacrifices which were given. Each of them had a symbolic meaning. Each of them represented something that you were saying. It, each of them was a statement that you made, an act of worship and a statement you made with that, uh, that particular symbolism of that particular sacrifice. Most of the sacrifices included slaughtering an animal, after which the whole family would sit around the table and they would take part in this sacrificial meal, kind of like a giant feast, like a big barbecue where everybody would sit around and they would eat uh, the meat of the sacrifice. Now there were a few exceptions. One of them was the burnt offering. Now in the burnt offering, they would slaughter the animal and they would set it on the altar and they would burn it until it was completely consumed, until nothing was left. And, and that was a statement. That was a symbolic thing. When you made a burnt offering, you were saying, I want to be fully and wholeheartedly dedicated to the Lord. Just as this sacrifice is fully consumed, I want my life to be fully consumed by the Lord. It was a symbolic statement. And that actually, that burnt offering, that is the image that Paul the Apostle taps into in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 where he says, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. He's saying, be like a burnt offering with your life as you live, be burned and consumed wholly by the fire of God. 
There was also a grain offering, which I like to call the vegetarian option, right, if you will. Uh, it didn't have any meat in it. It was just, you know, the vegan, vegetarian thing. But all the other sacrifices, whether they were uh, a sacrifice of atonement or a sacrifice for a fellowship offering, most of them included uh, slaughtering an animal and then cooking the meat and then eating the meat altogether. And part of the Old Testament law, it required that the priests be given some of the meat from the sacrifice. This was kind of their compensation, right? They didn't get uh, paid. This was the way they got paid. They got paid in meat, and they would always have enough to eat. But there were a number of things that we read here, and some of them you read it and you're like, what in the world is this? There's this flesh hook, and there's somebody cutting off the fat of something and what's going on and why is God so angry well here's why because there were these things that they were doing which were against the law it was against the rules people were bringing these offerings of worship to the tabernacle and these priests were cutting off huge portions for themselves taking inordinate amounts for themselves and this is basically in our day this would be the equivalent of the pastor and elders you know emptying the offering box and sticking half the money in their own pockets right it's bad stuff the old testament law made sure that the priests had enough food from the sacrifices that they would always have enough to eat these guys were taking more than they needed right they're taking more than enough and, and here's another thing they were taking raw meat that still had the fat on it now fat was considered the best part still is today that's why bacon costs more than most other meats right fat was considered the most luxurious part and the law required that the fat belonged to the Lord the fat the best part belonged to the Lord and uh, and that is a symbolic statement saying that we give God the best not the rest. We don't give him the leftovers. We don't give him what's left over after we take the best. We give him our best and we take the rest. So these guys were, were stealing the fat, God's part. Now, why would they do that? Why do they want this fatty meat? Why do they want way more eat meat than they can possibly consume? Well, most likely, we, we have a good uh, assumption here that what they were doing was taking all this meat and then selling it. In other words, they were creating a market so that they could make profit off of these people who were coming to sacrifice to God. In other words, they're getting rich. They're making a profit out of other people's worship. That's messed up, right? It shows no regard whatsoever for the sanctity and the holiness of worship. Not only were these guys skimming off the top to make themselves rich, it tells us in verse 22 that they were sleeping with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Now, th there's really two options here. Either these were women who came to worship and they were having affairs with these women, or these were women who served in the tabernacle. The, in Exodus, we read that there were women who would you know, help fill the, the basin of water and things like this. They were just servants in the temple, and that's probably what's going on here. So they're having you know, inappropriate relationships with the women who work in the church, so to say, right? It's the equivalent of the pastor who has affairs with members of the congregation, who has affairs with uh, people on the church staff. It's grievous stuff. The job of a priest was basically twofold. You were to represent God before the people, and you were to represent God to the people, right? Uh, I'm sorry, God before the people and the people before God. So you represent God before the people and the people before God. These guys were supposed to represent God to the people. They were doing a terrible job, right? And, and the point is that they were actually driving people away. People didn't want to be there. They didn't want to come around the tabernacle. They didn't want to worship because these guys were there and they were so corrupt. 
You know, it's been said that most people who are opposed to Christianity, right, they, they're, they're really adamantly opposed. Most people who are opposed to Christianity, the reason why they're opposed to Christianity or to church is not intellectual or philosophical, it's personal. It's personal. Have you experienced that? It's because of things that were done to them or ways that they've been treated by people who claim to be Christians but did not do a good job of representing the heart of Jesus. It's because of things that a pastor did that were incongruent with the heart of God, that were wrong. And this is the fruit of messed up ministry. It drives people away from the place of worship. It's, it's a terrible thing and it has a ripple effect. The deeds of the sons of Eli here, though, are, they're contrasted with the pure and simple faith of Hannah and of Samuel, a child in the temple just wanting to serve. They're not there to rip people off. They're there to serve God because they love God. They're devoted to him. These guys had a disregard for the holy. And I think that in a way, that's something that we in our modern church setting really need to be careful of. And I'll tell you why. We live in a very casual culture. When I moved here to Colorado, you know, coming from Europe where people like to dress up and look sharp a lot, uh, I, I moved here and I was told, don't dress up too much because you're gonna make other people feel uncomfortable, right? So it's just a casual culture, that's the reality of it. And as we try to do church in a way that speaks to people where they're at, meets people where they're at, right? And we bring the gospel to bear on people where they're at in a way they can understand it and they can see that Jesus isn't something far away and distant, but it's something very relevant to their life today. Uh, there's also a danger in that, that as we get more casual in the way that we do church, if we're not careful, we will lose the sense of holiness, the sense of reverence, the sense of the otherness of God, right? That we, what we do here when we seek God, when we take sacraments like communion and we do sacraments like baptism, we cannot lose that sense of reverence, that sense of holiness, the sense that this is something other, something different, that we have been called to be set apart. That's the whole thing about holiness, right? We want to talk about grace, but there's a danger that we would not emphasize that God is holy, right? That he has called us to be set apart as well. And so that's important, that when we pray, we not lose sense of that, that reverence for God, that we read his word and have a sense that this is something sacred, this is something special. You know, I said earlier that when you live life with God rather than under or over or for God, it's characterized by valuing God and by the fear of God. And what we see with these guys is that they exhibit no fear of God, no sense of the fact that God is to be reverenced, to be honored, that there are holy things, that his ordinances are to be valued. They treat them as common, right? They treat them as nothing special. And, and I would encourage you that, uh, too. That, that as, um, as we live in this casual culture, don't let casualness creep into your way that you relate to God so much where you lose a sense of reverence and the sense of the holy. You know, Proverbs 14 verse 4, it says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. If only these guys would have had the fear of the Lord. The last piece in this messed up puzzle, after messed up motivations and disregard for the holy, is the absence of discipline. Read with me again, if you would, from verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil deeds from all the people. This is Eli talking to his sons. No, my sons, for it is not a good report I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. 
If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them, right? In response to hearing about what his sons were doing, what does Eli do? He's the boss. He's the high priest. He's also their dad. He's responsible, though, for everything that goes on in the tabernacle. And what does he do? How does he deal with this problem? How does he take care of it? Essentially, he does nothing. He really doesn't do anything here. He just tells them, boys, knock it off, all right? All right, good talk, guys. Good talk. High five. All right, see you later. Have fun. He really does nothing. These guys have no right being priests, right? They're driving people away from God by their wicked actions. They, they, they're doing a disservice to everybody. But Eli basically does nothing. There is an absence of discipline. You know, a major ingredient in messed up ministry is where there's an absence of discipline, where there's no standards at all, right? Especially for people in leadership, when they can kind of do whatever they want and then just it gets kind of swept under the table if they say sorry. Of course, the Bible teaches grace. Of course it does. But it also teaches that there are standards, especially for people in ministry, but also for Christians in general. There are things that we need to repent of, right? He, that's the hallmark of Christianity, repentance. And, you know, um, you've got to turn from sin and turn to God. And if you're a pastor and you're living in sin, then it doesn't matter if, if you're a nice guy or a good speaker. You shouldn't be a pastor, okay? Not, at least not for a while until there's been some change and God's done a work in, of restoration and healing in your heart and in your life. And if you don't know the Lord and you're stealing from the congregation and having affairs, you can't be a pastor, right? That, that should be uh, understood. If there's a, a wolf in the flock, it needs to be chased off and and shot, metaphorically, of course, not, not really. Uh, so, um, but, but the absence of discipline is, a, is an ingredient that makes for messed up ministry. And God is loving and forgiving, infinitely so. But the call to follow Jesus, Paul the Apostle, he calls it the upward call of Christ Jesus, right? It's a, whole, it's a high and it's a holy calling. I want you to see this, the last part. Check out what Eli's failure results in for his sons, his failure to discipline his sons. Here's the result from verse, 20, or from verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes to be my priest? This is reference to Aaron, by the way. To offer up on my altar the burnt incense and burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and your house of your father will walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall be no, 
not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In the day they will die, in one day they will die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. And that's the end of the chapter. Eli was unwilling to discipline his sons and stop them from doing the wicked things they were doing in God's sanctuary. So God sends this messenger. We don't know who he is. He doesn't have a name here. But he is a messenger from God and he tells him, because of your failure to protect the sanctity of worship and the tabernacle and the priesthood, I am taking the priesthood away from you and your family. You would have had a dynasty. It would have continued on your family line, but I'm cutting it off and I'm going to give it to somebody else who will act according to my heart and my my mind. Originally, like I said, God had appointed this to Aaron and Aaron's descendants to be the priests. They were kind of locked in, right? Uh, now God's saying, no, you know what? You guys, by doing this, you forfeited your right to be priests, and I'm going to take it away from you, and I'm going to give it to somebody else. And that's exactly what happens. In chapter 4, Eli and his sons will die in one day, and Samuel will take over the duties of the priests. In regard to this, though, uh, this messed up ministry, here's what I wanted you to see. I said this at the beginning. I wanted you to see two things, the heart of God and the promise of God. Those of you who have been hurt by messed up ministry, here's what this section says to you. First of all, it tells you that God sees the messed up things that people do. And he's not okay with it. It's not okay. And he will deal with it. Secondly, it points us to the ultimate promise for those of us who hunger and thirst for things to be right. In verse 35, there's this cryptic verse, and it's really a promise that God is going to anoint another high priest, one who will do according to his heart and mind forever. But then he throws in this wrench in the works, this interesting phrase. He says, he will walk before my anointed forever, right? It's cryptic. It doesn't seem to fit with the, the rest of the thing that this messenger is saying and what we see here is it's very similar to a promise that God will make to David where he tells David I will establish your kingdom and I will establish an everlasting kingdom through one of your descendants that's a reference to Jesus see many of us have been hurt by people who misrepresented the heart and the mind of God Many have been hurt by messed up ministry, but here's what God says. He says, look, I'm not okay with that either. I'm not. I also take offense at the things that so-called ministers have done in my name that have hurt people and driven them away from the place of worship. But I want you to not look at those people. I want you to take your eyes off of those people who were wrong, and I want you to put your eyes on the high priest who is coming. The high priest who will actually do everything that's in my heart and in my mind. He will represent me correctly. He will show my heart to the people and his ministry will go on forever. There's only one person in all of history who matches that description. You know who it is? It's Jesus Christ, right? This whole book's about him. 
The Bible calls Jesus our great high priest who passed through the heavens and presented a sacrifice before God. He's the true intercessor between God and man. Remember what it said in verse 35? This interesting, or I'm sorry, verse 25. If a man sins against man, God will intercede for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for that man? Well, we have the answer for that in the Bible. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, someone to plead our case, someone to intercede before us, before God. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is the great message of the gospel. That is the great hope of the gospel. That all of us have sinned, and ultimately we have sinned not just against each other, but we've sinned against God. Who will stand in the place? Who will advocate for us before God? Who will intercede for us? Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the Bible. He is the true high priest who presented himself the perfect sacrifice for our sins so we could be forgiven, so that the wall between us and God could be broken down, so that we could know God in that dynamic, intimate way that Jesus described. And it's to him that we must look. For those of you who have been hurt by people, he's saying, take your eyes off of those people and turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Don't focus on how you've been hurt or how people have failed you, but I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Make him the object of your hope. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we do declare you are the object of our hope, Lord. For those of us who have been hurt, for those of us who have been turned away from you, in a sense, because of things that people did who claimed to be your representatives, Lord, thank you, Lord, that you, you, you're not okay with that. Thank you, Lord, that you hold up the ideal. And, and how, however failed and flawed we are as humans, Lord, thank you that we can look to Jesus and we have perfection and we have hope. Lord, thank you that he is the one who pleads our case before you and intercedes and reconciles us with you. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And as we leave this place, Lord, we want to leave this place in the hope of the gospel, knowing that Jesus Christ has taken all of our sin and made us new so that we can know you. Lord, I pray blessing upon us as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.